Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living a Life Through Books, the podcast about everything bookish. I'm your host, Dr. Shahnaz Ahmed, and today we have author conversations. Today, March 8th, Mariner will publish What's So Funny, a cartoonist memoir by iconic New Yorker cartoonist David Cypress. With wry insight, David writes about his hapless place in his Upper West Side family in the age of Sputnik and JFK. Throughout, cartoons appear in the narrative with spot-on precision, adding humor to evocative profiles of his family and musings on creativity and art. David Cypress has been staff cartoonist since 1998 for The New Yorker, where he has published nearly 700 cartoons. He lectures widely on cartooning and his autobiographical writing has appeared frequently on NewYorker.com. Before I bring up David, I wanted to say that your support of my podcast means a lot to me. The easiest way is to buy me a coffee. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash LLTB podcast. Every coffee you buy me helps keep me alert and this podcast going. I'll add the link in the show notes and I thank you. One more thing. I want to talk a bit about a great audiobook app, Libro.fm, lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, you know the name, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of this podcast can get two books for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that is L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code L-L-T-B podcast. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'll add the link in the show notes. And now, pull up a seat, sit back, relax, and enjoy author conversations with David Cypress, the author of What's So Funny? A Cartoonist Memoir. Well, David, first of all, I want to welcome you to the Living a Life Through Books podcast. I'm excited to have you. I've never had a cartoonist before on my podcast. This is exciting. Well, this is only my second podcast, so uh, we're close. Okay, okay, very good. I will tell you, I don't run it like a traditional podcast. We just go where the conversation takes us. Sounds good to me. Okay, so first thing, how about you summarize your book to my listeners? Like what your book is about? Well, my book is a memoir told in an almost like a series of short stories about my lifelong relationship to my art, which is cartooning, and the relationship of my cartooning to the story of my family, my mother, my father, and my sister. And I kind of go through both simultaneously over time, going back and forth now and then, not particularly chronologically, but telling those two stories together and giving some insights into how 
the cartoonist brain works and what inspires me and where I get my ideas, basically. Basically from anybody you meet and your family. So I am worried I'm going to show up in a cartoon. I, I should I'm check something right now. <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness, should I even look at the New Yorker? I don't think I want to do this. <laughs> okay, so um, I just want some clarification. How long have you been in the New Yorker? I know you've been trying for a long time. So what was that years? How many years were you trying to get into the New Yorker as a cartoonist? And how long have you been there? Well, it's a long, sad story, but it was 25 years that I tried and failed. But finally, in October of 1997, I was sitting at my desk and a fax came through from the assistant editor saying, David, congratulations, you sold your first cartoon. And uh, that was 1998, the first one appeared and uh, published around 700 cents. See, I don't look at this as a long, sad story. I look at this as a story of resilience and just sticking with it. Because today, in today's world, as you know, we expect immediate reward. You waited 25 years for your reward. I've talked to so many people waited years to get someplace. And and that's a good message, I think. Well, also in my field, there's the New Yorker and everything else. And so no self-respecting cartoonist ever gives up on the magazine because for me, from the time I was about six years old, it was my dream. So all the rejection couldn't possibly compete with the deep down desire to solve the problem. So, yeah. So now here's the question. You're a cartoonist and an author. How do you put the two together? Like, does being a cartoonist help being an author or does being a secretive author all your life have helped you be a cartoonist? How does that process work? Tell me about the creativity of it. Does it help you write a book? I mean, all of it. Well, the answer is a little bit long to that, but I'll try to give it to you. There is a relationship because it all involves writing. However, the thing about a single panel cartoon, which is what I do, is that I can finish my work in five minutes. I have an idea, I draw it, I write the caption, I'm done. And when I first started writing, I felt a little dismayed about how, you know, it was going to be, would I be able to do this longish kind of process? But I had had a a few years to practice because um, starting in 2013, I just started writing personal history essays and about 17 of them were published on the New Yorker website. So by the time a book came into the picture, I had at least a little preparation. The other thing is that the part of cartooning that is writing are the captions. Although they're very short and fragile little lines of dialogue, you do learn a lot. You learn about the rhythm of words. You learn about how to surprise the reader. You learn about what's necessary and what isn't because you just have this tiny space to work in. And so I think all those years of writing captions also was very helpful. And especially, I love writing dialogue. Writing dialogue to me is like sliding down a hill. It's just easy as can be. And that's because of all those captions, every one of them a line of dialogue that I've written. 
I hope that answers your question. No, it does. It does. So I, I'm like, I have so many, my brain's going in so many directions. I'm like, which way do we go? Okay. I know there was, there's one cartoon in your book that you have the tattooed guy and the tattooed dog. Yeah. And, you know, you're sitting there looking at this and there's no caption. It, it, you have it both with, without the caption first. And then you write that years later, the caption came to you. Yeah, is right. that how it always works? Or do you ever come up with, say, the caption, and then you sit there and you think and you think and you think about the cartoon to fit the caption? Well, I would say that sometimes it starts with a drawing that I, that I meditate on, like the one you're referring to, sometimes for years. Other times I hear someone say something, a word catches my interest. Sometimes certain words are like ripe fruits just ready to be plucked from the tree and, and a cartoon comes to me. But mostly in my life, in situations that I'm in, as we said before, there's a little part of my brain that's always listening for, the, for a possible cartoon. But mostly what it is, is a process of coming to my studio sitting down and kind of opening my mind to possibilities. Not drawing yet, but not also thinking of words, but just thinking in large part, what makes me anxious, what has, what has bothered me that day, what I worried about that day. And somewhere in that process, a cartoon will come to me and then I'll draw it and write the caption. So mostly it's this sort of meditation that I do. I'm going to go back to the writing and the cartooning. And you said dialogue comes easy for you. Is there a comic strip in the future for you? No, I'm not. I'm not interested in that. What's happened to me so unexpectedly at this point in my life is that I have fallen in love with writing prose. I just really, I find it so exhilarating. Now, it's not always easy. At first, I thought, as I mentioned before, how will I be able to you know, I get an idea and I finish it and that's a cartoon. How will I deal with a longer form? But what's happened is when it goes well, it's like I have one of those ideas after another, after another. And I find that so addictive and so in a kind of almost a physical pleasure. So I don't see myself doing a comic strip. What I'm really interested in is the writing combined with pictures, but mostly just the writing. What about a play, perhaps. I've, I've thought about that. That that could be possible because every cartoon is a little play, a little tiny scene. So yes, I've always thought that might be possible. To tell you the truth, I just finished this book. It hasn't quite been published yet. And I'm in that weird place where all I can think about is, well, what's going to happen next? And so I haven't been doing too much writing of any kind or thinking what I want to do next quite yet. So maybe there are cartoons about what's going to happen next. <laughs> like... oh, oh, I've done some of those. Yes. Uh, because as I said before, I can only think about what happens next uh, in the form of worrying and worrying is a great source of, of humor for me. So, okay. So most people say worrying is not good, but I guess it's good for you. You can make it into something then it's good. Whatever works, <laughs> whatever works, David. So what is your favorite cartoon? Do you have a memory of a cartoon that sticks out among the millions that you've, not 
I don't know if you've done millions, but among several that you've done, is there one that just goes, I remember this one? There are two or three, but I can describe one in particular and tell you how it came into life. When I first was in The New Yorker, I attended my first New Yorker holiday party, which I was really excited about. You know, it's kind of a intellectual celebrity marathon. And uh, I got to my first party, I was really excited. And I noticed a group of cartoonists, famous ones I recognized standing in one corner of the room, but I was too shy to introduce myself. And then one of them, one of my real heroes, looked over and he saw me and he started coming towards me and I got all excited, he's coming. And he got up to me and he said, I know who you are. I said, wow, he knows who I am. And then he said, you don't belong in the New Yorker. <laughs> what? And he said, "You, what do you draw with, a stick? And I was pretty devastated. Oh. What I felt like saying was, well, just because I don't draw like you doesn't mean I do bad drawings. Mm-hmm. But instead, I was quiet. I had a good time. I got back to my studio that night. I went at about midnight and I sat down and drew what is one of my favorite, if not my favorite cartoons, which is a very well-drawn, carefully drawn man and a ridiculously drawn dog. And the man is saying to the dog, bad drawing. Right. Yes, it's in the book. Yes. So that that is a great favorite of mine that I, I never I never have forgotten. I guess taking emotions and anger, maybe, and all of that and putting it into cartoon makes it more effective. It's a wonderful way to process those feelings. Humor is great for that. And, uh, you know, it's not like it's therapy that has cured all my problems, but it is something I've been doing since I was a kid to, to, as I say, to process feelings. So now here's the thing. You wrote a memoir. What is that process? I know you said you've been writing little, um, I guess, essays about your life for a few years. When did that change? And what was the process to say, oh, you know what? I'm going to take all of these and I'm going to make it into a memoir. Was that something that came internally, externally? Did someone else tell you to do this? When did this all that start? It's a combination. I mean, I kind of felt like that's where things were going. But Various editors and friends at The New Yorker kept saying, oh, when are you going to write that memoir? You know, you've written all these stories about your life. And and finally, it just began to seem inevitable. However, I did a cartoon recently of a woman sitting at her laptop. And on the screen, it says, nothing remotely interesting has ever happened to me, a memoir. And that's sort of the way I felt when I started out. I felt like, you know, what is there in my life that's worth writing a whole book about? But what's true about writing is that it doesn't really matter what the content is. Once you start writing about it, you can turn it into something. And the more I started writing, the more stories from my youth and my childhood and other times in my life began coming back to me. And pretty soon I, what, what is this? Oh, I have an entire book here in front of me that I never expected to write. So That's the answer. It's not something I ever imagined for myself until I started doing it. My wife always said, you really need to write a book. And so she's happy. There you go. go. Did you already have an agent when you started this? Because I mean, your connections with the New Yorker, things like that, or did you have to go through the regular process of? 
Well, I have I have a wonderful agent, Sarah Burns, and she was a friend of a friend of mine from the New Yorker, who thought and this friend of mine, another wonderful writer, Sarah Larson at the New Yorker, uh, said I think she would like you and you would like her. So we met and we immediately hit it off on a personal basis, and I handed her my book proposal and she loved it. Uh, she throughout the process from the very be- that very beginning until the end, she functioned mostly as an agent, but also she was a terrific editor and advice giver. And she really helped me shape the book. And so I never had to suffer looking for an agent, which I feel extremely lucky for because I've spoken to other writers and know that they can take years to, to attract an agent. So I feel fortunate in, yeah. in and she also edited the book. So you didn't have a separate editor. So no, no, no. She, I did have, I do have an editor, a wonderful editor at, now at HarperCollins, who also is terrific. But my agent had like the big picture in mind mm-hmm. and basically told me I needed to move things in this direction or that direction. And wow, her advice just liberated me. So I'll always be grateful to her not just for the great job she's done agenting me, but also the advice that she gave. Well, that's great. Like you said, a lot of people try and try and try. I don't know if they go to 25 years to get an agent, but (laughs) (laughs) I hope it's not as hard as making it as a cartoonist in the New Yorker. Let's put it that way. I hope not, but. uh, Okay. So what do you hope your readers will take from the book? I mean, I read the book. What do you hope I would have gotten from the book? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Well, first of all, I hope the reader would enjoy it, get some laughs out of it, but also feel connected the way I do to the people in the story. I never thought of the three of them, my mother and my father and my sister as fascinating characters, but the more I wrote about them, the more I felt connected to them. They're all long dead, but I reestablished a connection to them that maybe I never had. And I hope that the reader feels connected to them as well. And I also hope that the reader will gain some insights into the creative process. Maybe I think a little too much for my, of myself to, when I say that I think I can show people how that works. But I honestly believe that what I've written about how my cartoon brain works and my creativity works, that that will be something the reader would would go away from really interested. Um, so that's my answer. Okay. No, I, I enjoyed the book. I loved the little clips. And uh, my thought was, there was the story, the dollar story. You know where you had to go buy, what was it, the newspaper? What uh, Was it the New York Times? Sunday Times. Sunday yeah. Times, yeah. You had to go as a child to buy the paper and this was more in the beginning of the story. So you have to go buy the paper. Of course, you go to the store and you don't buy the paper because you just decide that candies are more important. I'm a dentist. So I'm reading this going, oh, my God, your teeth are going to rot out, kid. What are you doing? Mother, you sound like my mother. <laughs> I swear. I know that's what your mom. But I was just like, that's what I was thinking, you know. That was the first thought, other than the fact that you're not following directions and all of that. Well, then you have the change that you you literally trashed. Yeah. And then you came back and, of course, lied to your parents about it, which is all great. 
But the interesting part of the story is it doesn't end there. It comes full circle because at the very end, your dad asks you about it when you're way older. And you're like, why does it matter? Yeah. I want to know about that. Like, what are your thoughts about it? Well, why do you think it matters so much to your dad? And did that story even matter to you? Like, what are your thoughts about it now? Thinking back going, oh, my God, did I really do that? Or, Well, there's a few things. First of all, what I learned in the early story, what I, did, I learned the power of the, a lie. I thought I had successfully lied to my father and uh, had somehow escaped any more than a slight reprimand. And I thought, wow, this lying thing really works. It's really good. And I did, I've done a bunch of that in my life. And when the story comes up again near the end of the book, I discover, or my father informs me, he never believed me. But he didn't say anything because he didn't want to ruin. He thought on some level, it was pretty funny what I had done. And he wanted my mother to get a laugh. And so he told my mother the same story I told him. And he protected that forever because he didn't want to deprive her of a good David, little David story. But it comes up at the end as part of a long, something that comes up a lot in the book, which is what I refer to as the meaning of money, which is a phrase my father used over and over and over again. You don't understand the meaning of money. And for someone like my father, an immigrant who had struggled and struggled to, to make it and made it, money is very, very important and, a, and a kind, something almost worthy of worship. And he tried to imbue that in me over and over in my life. And the end of the story relates to the phrase, the meaning of money, which you have to read the book to understand. Well, right, right, of course, yeah. So what does money mean to you now? Oh, you know, I, if I, if, if it had mattered a whole lot to me, I don't think I ever would have chosen this profession because nobody, at least nobody I know, gets rich doing it. Money, you know, when you get to be older, you want a certain level of safety and basically, but I, I still tell you the truth. Every day I get up, not every day, but most days I get up and I think about what I do for a living and I have to pinch myself that I actually can afford to have a life based on purely on this work, which is fun. It's just a really fun way to make a living. So I feel very lucky that I have that. That's great. I mean, a lot of people, you know, we want to do what we enjoy and then we end up working for money. I, I was reminded of one thing I want you when you said you were a dentist. Yes. You Sparked a memory that I haven't thought about in a long time. Oh, goodness. Am I going to be in another cartoon? How many cartoons are you making out of me? My my parents sent me to a dentist. They Mm -hmm. didn't know very well when I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. Who apparently did not believe in Novocaine. uh, Just believed in, you know. Ouch. his, His approach was he would sit me in the chair and I'd have a cavity and he'd start drilling and he'd turn up his record player. He played opera. And he would sing opera really loud along with the record to drown out my ah! So that's, that was my first dentist that I experienced. Wow. And I complained. I told my mother, you know, this, I, as a little kid, I said, he's so mean. And she said, he's a dentist. He's a professional. <laughs> so I'm not going to listen to that. So 
I suffered. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. We do have Novocaine these days, but the flip side of it is, let's take that same David who was screaming at the dental chair, but if you had to get the Novocaine injection, you'd have been screaming for that too. You're right. Any pain, there's screaming. No matter which way you go, no matter which way you slice it, it's going to, you know, it's, I wish I could say dentistry is a hundred percent, hundred percent painless. I, I wish I could say that. Yeah. And then you add the factor of being a child and what you process. And it, it's very tricky. I'm actually a pediatric dentist. So. Oh, really? Oh, well, I'm sure you're very gentle and you don't sing loud opera uh, when you work. So. Well, I only, only, only. If you're helping me, if you're not helping me, I'm like, listen, I'm going to be singing and that's going to hurt people's ears. It's like, okay, open your mouth. Okay, good. I'll stop singing. Good deal. Uh, So what is your favorite? um, I want to call it a clip in this book. What is your favorite memory? The scene that you're like, I can't wait to write this. This is this is fun. There are a few. One was when my sister threw my got me to throw my pet turtle out the window. That was a story just waiting to be told. I love that story. And uh, let's see, what else? In another way, the story about the Kennedy assassination, my experience of that, my father, what my father said, and how much that revealed to me about who he is and who I am, uh, that is another big story. And the other one was the day I quit graduate school. That was a really important day in my life, and it happened in a kind of crazy way. So those three really stick in my mind. And then there's some, you know, not so pleasant stories that I also value and and that involving later in the lives of my parents and my sister. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm still shocked about your dad with the stick up in the store. Well, yeah, there's that too. Yeah. That was an amazing, a chapter called the robbery. And my father's choices that he made in that moment, to me, were in retrospect, were really fascinating. As a kid, they were frightening. Yeah, that that's a story most people seem to respond to in the book, actually. I can't believe I just forgot to mention that. So. No, no, it, I just, because I, I can't, I'm kind of like, I'm still processing that story. I think I'll be processing it for a while because I'm just like, at what point does a person know that, oh, it's fine. This is just a negotiation. I'll just be fine. That's okay. I'm just going to, it's not life or death. It's just a negotiation. How, I just blows my mind. Well, that's what my father was a kind of unique individual in that he never had that thought. Negotiating was just who he is in the world. To him, that situation didn't require him changing at all. He just did what he's always done. It took me many, many years to understand that. But I, looking back, I see that everything with my father was a negotiation. There are some people like that, though, in the world. Apparently, yes, there are. There are a lot of people who every, every relationship, every meeting is like a business meeting and it's a negotiation. And uh, yeah, oh my, yep. So let's see. Um, have you read other memoirs? Like what, what memoirs do you tend to gravitate towards? I've, I've read a lot. Um, a couple that I read in the process of writing this book that really mattered to me and uh, was a Robert Caro's memoir called Working. Okay. Um, 
he went to my high school. So I was kind of interested in him. But the one that really, really liberated me to do my own work in a way was by my favorite novelist, John le Carré, who wrote a memoir called The Pigeon Tunnel. And what I learned from his memoir was, first of all, that you don't have to have a strung together chronological story. He also wrote kind of vignettes from his life. Of course, his life is so incredibly fascinating. You know, he met everybody and he was a spy and all that stuff. Wow. But still, he gave me permission to write the book the way I wanted to write it. And also he... um, I quote him in the in the book, I think, I can't remember it exactly, but I think he writes in his in his memoir, memory is as slippery as a wet bar of soap. And so he up front says, I don't know if everything in here is true. It's how I remember it, but and that's good enough for me. And I had been struggling and worrying, well, am I sure this is how things happened? But reading when I read that sentence, I I kind of gave up that whole notion of worrying about that. Um, And I just decided if that's the way I remember it, then it's my truth and that's what I'm gonna write. Right. Yeah, there are things from my childhood. I'm like, mom, this is what happened. And my mom's like, that never happened. I'm like, yes, it did. My mom's like, no, it did not. And he's like, okay, but that's how I remember it. And I don't know why, but that's how my mind is and, and the things, the way that we choose to remember things, whether they're true or not, tells a lot about who we are and what's important to us. So whether or not it's the exact truth about what happened, it's a truth about, truth about in my case, me as a person, that I choose to remember it that way. And that was that's what really interests me. So what were your favorite things to write about? And what did you not want to write about? Like, were there some extremely hard parts to write about? I mean, obviously, you know, you've had, you know, deaths and all of that. And what were parts that you really enjoyed writing about? Well, I think I, you know, the one stories that I mentioned are the ones that are fun. Right. From the very beginning, I kept putting off and putting off writing the stuff that wasn't so much fun, that was painful, even devastating. And I was worried not so much about a little bit about revisiting them because that was a kind of painful process. But mostly what I was worried about was I'm a cartoonist and as a writer, humor is really important to me. How can I tell these stories of something really painful without the tone of the book being abandoned? I found ways to do that. Some of it involved using the cartoons in the book. And I found eventually as hard as it was that I was able to write those things and get the truth about them on the page, but do it in a way that I never lost the tone of the book. Not that everything is a ha ha laugh out loud, but I, I tried to connect it all to my life as a cartoonist. And so eventually I found my way through writing those, those, the hard stuff. Yeah. Oh, sounds, I don't know. It, <laughs> That would be rough. What is your, um, so I know you said you were writing vignettes for the New Yorker. What's the whole timeline? Did I miss that? You were writing and then people told you you should write a memoir. And then you decide one day you're going to write a memoir. You found an agent immediately. And so let's go over the timeline, all of that. The first essay I wrote and was published on the New Yorker website in 2013. 2013. Uh, It's my little story about the famous 
Italian chef and cookbook writer, Marcella Hazan, who was kind of my hero in the kitchen. And I wrote it on the day she died. I read that she died. And I thought, this is my job. This person means so much to me. And I and I published a cartoon about her that was quite uh, popular. I thought, I'm the person that has to do this. And I sat down and in an hour, I wrote a personal essay about her. I sent it to the editor of the website and he published it. And I wow. thought, this is great. I can write. And so <laughs> I, I kept up doing a few, few of those every year until about 2018, which is when I started the book. I spent six or eight months writing a book proposal. Actually, I wrote most of the book. And what happened was actually, the first person I showed it to was my wife, who's my favorite editor and advisor. And she read it and she said it was one of the scariest things she ever had to do. She had to tell me that she said, it's not you. It's not who you are. Oh, wow. And I was, I was a little freaked out, but I went right to work because I understood what she was saying, which relates to what we were talking about a minute ago. She said, David, it's not funny. And so I rewrote. And then I think it was in early 2019 that I sent what I had to Sarah Burns, to my agent. Mm -hmm. And she gave me a lot of advice, just as big as my wife's advice, actually, but uh, really helpful. And then I spent the next two years writing. And well, then by the summer of 2019, I had a completed most of the book and my agent sent it around and it immediately got bought by Houghton Mifflin. Then I've been working on it ever since. Uh, so it, the actual book was about three years of writing. Yeah. And then now, you know, Houghton Mifflin is no longer exists. It's now. Right. They got, well, they do exist, but not in the memoir fiction realm. I think they still exist in the That's educational true. realm. Yeah. So they, now, now I'm up with Mariner Books, HarperCollins. Um, right. Yeah. Which was, which was really interesting when uh, Houghton Mifflin got bought over, it got bought over by Mariner, which was like, this, suddenly it's this new division of HarperCollins. It's, it didn't just go Houghton Mifflin to HarperCollins, it's just Mariner. I'm like, who the heck is Mariner? It's like, oh, it's a part of HarperCollins. It's like, okay, okay, whatever. It's all good. <laughs> it's like, the only thing that mattered to me, I, I, you know, as a writer, if I, I think any writer, if you, if I paid too much attention to that, I might start to get scared, but I wasn't because my editor, Deanne Ermey, my wonderful editor, stayed. They, she, she held on to her job and switched over, and I was really relieved and happy about that because we have a great relationship, and she's done amazing things to have, to make the book better. So that change, uh, you know, I, don't, I just don't want to know too much about it because, you know, those things you have no control over. Um, anyway, that's that. Like, what do you mean those, what, what do you not have control over? Over, you know, like you don't have much control over the publishing part of your book. You have a little control. You can do things like this, um, stuff like that, and be charming and interesting, <laughs> which is good, but the nuts and bolts of the operation, I just kind of had to let go of, of uh, 
for example, any concerns I might have had about what the change in ownership of, of Houghton Mifflin was going to mean for me. Right. Personally. If I thought about that, I would not have been able to complete the editing process. I, I just would have been too freaked out. So that's right. what I Right. You just, I mean, okay. Yeah. When things, yeah, I guess it's still, it's still like, what is it? A top five publisher, you know, HarperCollins is still HarperCollins. So no, that's. I'm happy. I'm, I'm, I have nothing. They've been great. I'm really happy with them. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's a huge thing. So what do you want your legacy to be, David? My legacy? Yeah. What, what do you want your legacy to be? Wow. You know, I did a cartoon years ago. I do a lot of cartoons involving sort of medieval scenes with kings and stuff. This was when Obama, there was a lot of talk about Obama's legacy. So I drew a picture of a king saying to his advisors, I'm concerned about my legacy. Kill the historians. <laughs> I saw that. Yes. So, I mean, but, you know, I hope people remember he made people laugh and he told good stories. And there's a lot of personal stuff that I don't need to go into here. That would be my legacy, too. What is your dream for your book? Oh, if I said that out loud, I'd probably jinx myself. I okay. think we. We both know what everybody's dream is for their book. To, so, to make it huge, New York Times bestseller, make millions of dollars out of it because, you know, uh, what was it? The meaning of money. So, and <laughs> all of that. And to do a world tour. And yeah, there you go. I want everybody listening to know she said it, not me. I, I'm, I'm not going to jinx myself. No, no, I'm just, I just, you know, it's, you know, it's, it, it's really interesting. I find like you write a book and we all say, no, it's fine. It's fine. I'll just write the book. I'm just in the process of doing it and we'll get it done. And that's okay. But deep down, we all obviously want something else and we just kind of let it go and see what happens. And also, I mean, I think at a certain point, if you've been a creative person your whole life and you've done, I mean, I, I've been a cartoonist since professionally since about 1971, eventually you grow up enough to learn that it's the doing of the thing that really matters. Again, you have very little control about the rest of it, but if you learn to take pleasure and be inspired by the work, you can always remind yourself of that no matter what results out in the world happen. So that's a, you know, I'd be a, a very evolved person if I could do that, but I, at least I try to do that. So do you have um, a next book? Not yet. I'm working on it, though. I've got a really? few. Well, I just got a few ideas, but, you know. It's, Novel, uh, fiction, nonfiction? What are we talking about? Or you just don't want to jinx that at all? I don't know yet. I'm just keeping my toe in the writing. I don't know where it's going to go. So I really don't, I don't know. I don't have an answer right now. I hope I have another book in me. So we'll see. So what is your relationship with books? I mean, it's, I know we talked about the writing and cartoon and you're like, it's all writing. You have to be a great writer to be a cartoonist, all of that. But what's your relationship with books? I, I read all the time. In fact, I've switched over to a large extent to Audible and audiobooks. So now I don't just read when I used to read, but I read when I'm taking the subway. I read when I'm uh, cooking dinner. I read all the time. We, my wife and I totaled up the number of books we've bought from 
Audible since 2016, 743 books. Wow. So, reading is very important to me. I, I just don't think life would be worthwhile without, without books. That's the way I feel. What genres do you read? Lots of things. I'm, I love really good uh, mystery and thriller writers. And the reason is that I've always been drawn to very direct prose, not a lot of high flowery description. I love that simple, direct prose. And not mystery writers and thriller writers are often great at that, but so are all kinds of writers, um, from Albert Camus to John Le Carré to uh, just about anybody who writes that way, I love to read. I sometimes lose patience with the other kind of writing, and that's a, I probably should stick with things more, but I just love that straightforward, simple prose. Okay. I have to tell you, David, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I just use a different company. So I use one that helps the independent bookstores. So I'm kind of like, no, go back, go to Libra FM. Don't do Audible. But anyway, I, like, I, well, it's my podcast. I can say what I want. It's like, um, okay. Well, do you have any, um, any things you want to mention about your book, about the process, anything that you feel we haven't talked about? Wow, I, I feel like we touched on a lot of subjects and uh, this has been a really interesting conversation. I can't think of anything really except to say, you know, if anybody is listening, please read my book. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, it's called What's So Funny? A Cartoonist Memoir. So I yes, it comes out on March 8th. Correct. And it's great vignettes. I loved it. I, I really... I, I really enjoyed it. And there are times I, I think, you know, I'm going to go back and reread some of it because some of the vignettes, it's, some of it's so poignant. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah. It, it just like there are times I was like, I remember, uh, what was it? Oh, I can't remember what it was. It's something about how something really bad happened. It might have it might have just been the Kennedy assassination where the comment was made that Oh, was he Jewish? Was he Jewish? Oh, you know, the concept of was he Jewish? And that goes back to the exact same conversation I've had with someone else in my life where I'm a Muslim. So now when something happens, I, I was telling my friend, I said, I hate to say, but my first question is, was he Muslim? Did he have a Muslim name? Oh, no, thank God. Okay. You know, and it's just like, I was like, how am I wired this way? And then when I read that in your book, that really spoke to me. You're far from the first person who said that to me. I think it's a very common feeling that we all have, ask ourselves right away, was it, in my case, I, I, I hope to God he wasn't Jewish. That, that's, it's a very common experience. Um, and I have Muslim friends who have said exactly the same thing that you just said and black friends who have said the same thing that you just said. So, yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for spending time with me, chatting about your book. I wish you great, great, great success. Thank you. And I look forward to your next book also when it comes out, whenever thank that is. It's been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. I mean, it's neat to talk to different authors. Even with authors who have written memoirs, this one I felt was more unique in that David is a cartoonist and it's a great 
intersection of art and writing. I have to be honest here, I recorded this podcast in January of this year, and I have it uploaded and ready to go for March 8th, that is today, so I can't really predict what my next episodes may be about. This episode drops in March, and at the time of recording, I still have a month to go. But I can make a reasonable prediction that I will be working on something, maybe something more bookish. Of course, we'll continue with Month in Review and Book Club, and that's all I have for this episode. Before I go, if you loved this episode or any of my previous episodes, please take a moment to write me a review on Apple Podcasts. Please share this podcast with your family and friends and through your social media channels. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram on Living a Life Through Books. I'm also on Clubhouse. Look me up by name. I'm on TikTok. My tag is at Dr. Shnaz Ahmed. But I think the page is called Living a Life Through Books. I'm still new to TikTok and still navigating the waters there. My tag on Swell is at Bookish Podcast. It's a different kind of audio app. But it's still a good way to reach me. You can reach me through email. My address is livingalifethroughbooks at gmail.com. My website is shanazahmed.com. That is S-H-A-H-N-A-Z-A-H-M-E-D.com. The opening and closing music to this and all my previous episodes was composed by my husband, Brad Slavik. I'm Dr. Shanaz Ahmed with Living a Life Through Books signing off. Remember to water the seeds within you. It's time.